Now, this is the third sermon uh, from the book of Nehemiah under the theme of revitalization. And we have seen so far uh, that the text that we've been looking at from Nehemiah 8 is concerned with the building of the people of God. And the lessons so far that were taken by the original hearers and which apply to us this day in both chapters 8 and 9, well... Well, the previous sermons made the point that in order for the church to be renewed, uh, people revitalized, that's something that we should be considering after the, the year that this whole country has been through. It is necessary, as was pointed out in the last two weeks, for us to respond to God through the word of God. As he calls on us, we are to wholeheartedly follow him, uh, not just in theory, but in practice. So we become willing participants in what God is doing. It's just why I started off at the very beginning of the morning talking about the hope we have in him who can do more than we can imagine. And so as I stated two weeks ago, as chapter 8 makes clear, this is a message that is to be taken on with a sense of joy rather than mourning. Uh, It is not uh, that we are to be defined by failures of the past, but rather we are defined by God. And we have a future in his hands, a future, as I keep saying, which is more than can be imagined. Now, Nehemiah 10 is obviously the culmination of chapters 8 and 9. They're building up to this point. But actual fact, chapter 10 in Nehemiah is the high point, the the pinnacle of the whole book. There's a sense of completion here in this list of names. You know, Nehemiah 1, it starts off in tears. Nehemiah weeping when he hears the news of Jerusalem. The the book starts off in a context of reproach and mourning. By chapter 6, the walls, the gates, the temple, they're rebuilt despite the fierce opposition. And yet more importantly, by chapter 10, we have the people rebuilt. We have the people of God without that sense of reproach, no longer living in the shame of the ruins. Instead, we have the people of God who are exposed to the word of God. You see that in chapter 8 and chapter 9, and by chapter 10, they respond. They respond in practice and not just uh, in theory. What's interesting about chapter 10 is, is that by then, they are the people of God in practice and not just status. I mean, when the walls were ruined, when things were destroyed, they were still the people of God. But now they declare themselves anew as his people. Now, in chapter 9 that we had last week, the assembly was called. The people respond to God, the one who'd been knocking at the door of their hearts. And now that we come to chapter 10, we have the conclusion to that assembly. The conclusion is the commitment of the people in a public and binding manner. Now, the reading this morning included the last verse of chapter 9 uh, in the, the Hebrew text. Uh, it's actually uh, part of, the, the, of, of chapter 10. And so it made sense to start there. Because of all of this, what's been going on, uh, particularly in chapter 9, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document. Uh, The names of our priests, uh, sorry, our princes, our Levites, and our priests. The point is that up until this point, the people have been reading the Bible. They have been reading the Torah of God. uh, But now they're ready to commit themselves to the God of the Torah. Ezra has read to them in the first assembly. He's read to them every day for three weeks. And now at this conclusion of the work of God here, we see the response of the community. The the people are responding to the reading. 
They respond to the reading of the text of God by dedicating themselves to the God of the text. There is a difference there. And they respond in verse 38 with a, a solemn agreement. Uh, we we uh, often read it as a covenant. Um, strangely, it's not uh, the normal word for covenant, uh, bereith. Uh, we have instead a uh, sign of faithfulness, uh, amen. Uh, it, it's where we get the word amen from. Uh, the people are saying amen to this idea. It's not that a group of men are simply writing their names on a document on behalf of everybody else. Everybody is saying, Amen, yes, let it be, let this be, let us commit ourselves, all of us. It's the same word that's used for Abraham and the faithfulness of Abraham in chapter 9, verse 8. And so the people are standing there saying, Amen, we're going to stand with the forefathers, we're going to stand with the history of people in this place, who have stood with God. And today, we are taking that on for ourselves. That's the import in this covenant, this uh, amunah that they are having. And so, yes, having had a context of weeping, uh, we see even as recently as chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, uh, the people are weeping. They, they see their history of rebellion read out in, in verses uh, 6 to 31, uh, and their present plight noted in verses 32 to 38. And after all of this, we have this communal action. No more talk about failures of the past. No more reliance on people who went before. It's for themselves, and the time is now. What are we going to do now? And so there's this emphasis on we. The people declare that we make this agreement. We stand before God. They say, let it be so. Let our priests, let our Levites sign it. They all take hold of this. It's a response of the people of God rather than a response made on their behalf. Uh, Equally this morning, it it makes perfect sense to me to say that I could not make a response on behalf of all of you or on behalf of the church. That's, That's not possible. We all come together as a community before God. And just like that community, you stand together or not at all. There is no difference, really. Uh, between what they faced then and every church since then and where we find ourselves now. Now, the declaration is made, uh, this high point is made, in the acknowledgement that there's an awful lot to do. Uh, They continue, you see, these people, to be dominated by others. Their lives are not really entirely their own. Their goods are prone to be just simply snatched away. And what is really wonderful, then, is they make this commitment, not when everything is perfect and strong and everything else. They make this commitment in their weakness because of who God is. For them, it was obvious how precarious a position they were in if it wasn't for the God they served. Their great amen comes in a place of distress. They commit, but in the knowledge that their strength is tenuous. And so they commit to the rock of ages, the God that never changes, the great I am. That's the context of the names <laughs> that we have actually uh, from the opening verse of uh, chapter 10 all the way through to verse 28. This roll call of honor, these uh, names on the agreement. And the list employs uh, the rather customary ordering of priests in verses 1 to 8, Levites in 9 to 13, and the leaders of the people in verses 14 to 27. Now, I appreciate that for many of us, uh, it is very easy to maybe skip over the names. Uh, It's quite common to see a list like that and just kind of skip on to get to the good bit, uh, as it were. Uh, 
The names don't really mean anything to us. We may even sit there dutifully as they're read out to us or applaud the audacious reading of strangely juxtaposed sounds. Many times these lists are seen as somewhat tedious. That may even be especially the case in a book like Nehemiah where there are many lists of such names. These men long dead, strange foreign names just collated in the text. But this is a roll call of honor. These are men who wish to stand and be counted. These are people who said, here I am. Here's my name. I I want it to be known today that I belong to God. I I am going to raise my head above the parapet. I want to write my name down here because I love him with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my might. And today I will stand. Each of those names incredibly precious. The list would be incomplete without each and every one of those names. Just as we're incomplete without each and every one of us. So the list starts off with Nehemiah. Uh, By adding his name, he's saying, I am Nehemiah, and I stand here. I join in the great Amen. I want the world to know that I stand with God, that I stand with the people of God as we commit our future to him. And then he's followed by the priests, the Levites, and the leaders who swear their allegiance to God. Each of these statements, so each of these names is a statement saying, this is what God has done for me. However, it's more than just a simple list. And the author of this list, we think it's Ezra, writes them out in a very peculiar way. If you have your Bible, if you saw the reading, you'll notice that it's not a normal list. It's not just simply a jumble of names. He's actually written them out in a very particular way. He's written them out in a specific order, slightly different from normal, and he has put them in little trios. If you actually glance at your text, you'll notice that the names are in little trios all the way down, and he's done this with a purpose. Unlike other names, which again is just a collection of names, he has actually done something odd with these names uh, by putting them in this style. You see, each of the names actually means something. It's not just a noun uh, that you can identify someone with. Each of the names has a meaning. And he has woven the names in a particular order, particularly after the first verse. Uh, He puts them in a particular order because he's actually weaving a story. He puts the names together because each of these names uh, doesn't just simply represent the man who was writing it down. Uh, Each of the names means something, and he puts them in an order to tell you the story of the people who have been rescued by God and who can now come and stand where they are standing, assemble where they are assembled as a people who are renewed. I think uh, starting off with Nehemiah uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, even just the name Nehemiah, uh, it means uh, the consoling of Yahweh. And it is remarkable that that's, you know, where we start. Because this has been, as I said, a book filled with tears. You know, Nehemiah who wept at the beginning, the people who wept in chapter 8 when their failure was realized, who wept in chapter 9 when they come in repentance. Uh, There is so much tears throughout that book and for good reasons. But what's so striking is that even in the name Nehemiah, in a book of weeping, we are reminded we have a God who consoles, a God who wipes away the tears. A God hears the cries of the people and he is not unmoved. 
There are many times that we are reduced to tears, as a repeat the words of the psalmist, that our beds float on the tears of the night, but we are not alone. And as is in the case of Nehemiah, God consoles, and as we know, there is a day to come when all the tears are wiped away. The opposite beginning to this high point in the book, a people who have been full of tears find a God who consoles. Now, the next name on the list is not actually one of those signing. It's the father of Nehemiah. Um, it's a, a kind of a note on family history. Uh, and Nehemiah is noted as the son of Chak uh, Aliyah, uh, meaning um, the one who Yahweh has enlightened. What a striking name that is for people who've been living in the exile. You know, this is a man in the exile, the man who raised Nehemiah, the man that Yahweh enlightened. In the place of complete darkness, there was this light that went all the way through that God oversaw so that there would be a Nehemiah. Uh, There was the enlightening in the darkness so that eventually there would be a point where the tears are wiped away. That is the same God we serve. And sometimes it can feel, uh, sometimes as Christians in different contexts, it can feel that you are the enlightened one in the darkness. Certainly that's how we're described. And God ensures that there is a light because one day the tears are going to be wiped away. Of course, when I read about uh, the faithful father in times of difficulty, it strikes a certain resonance. Uh, I'm very mindful as a father of trying to be a light to my children. Of course I am. But actually it has a resonance for all of us here. (laughs) When we think of renewal, when we think of what we are doing, it's because we're thinking of what are we passing on to the next generation. No, when we read about uh, this man, Chakaliah, we should rejoice at every one of the precious gifts that we have in this place. Uh, all of the young lives that are here and that we can affect. But it is also slightly bigger than that. You know, every young Christian that comes in, how are we the light for them? You know, how do we shape? Because we all have an effect on each other. Uh, The question is what effect it's going to be, not whether there will be an effect. Who's imitating us as we imitate Christ? It's a rather, uh, sometimes for me, rather worrying question. (laughs) When God provides a light that continues down the generations until the day that the tears are wiped away. Now, alongside Nehemiah uh, stands uh, Sadiqiah. Uh, Yahweh is righteous. Uh, Yahweh, um, uh, revealed through his scriptures, is the very definition of what is right. He is the arbiter of good and evil. And yet, using the personal name of God, Yahweh, we don't have some sort of abstract philosopher. We don't just simply have uh, a righteous judge with a considered opinion. Uh, we have a person who acts, and everything that he does shows us what is right, shows us who he is. Uh, So when he comes on the side of the unloved, we see him. When he rescues, when he loves, when he grieves, when he judges, we see him, the right one. And of course, we are called to represent him. And in actual fact, as the representatives of God here in Aberdeen and slightly beyond, uh, we have these two names. You know, Nehemiah, the the, the Yahweh, the God who wipes away the tears, and the God who is right. 
And that's our challenge. Uh, in everything that Ezra writes, there's, there's always a bit of a challenge in everything he seems to write. And that's a, that's a challenge for us because we recognize that's who he is. And we are so grateful. We are so grateful to serve the one who consoles. We are so grateful to be able to see the one who is right. And then we ask him to help us to overcome our weaknesses, to overcome the ways that we are not the people that console, that are not the people who are right, as individuals, as human beings. And we come to him, the one who is, and we have hope. And to recognize again that he can do more than I can imagine. The names continue. Um, that, that's just the, the, the first uh, uh, few. Uh, verse 2 starts us with the first of the, of the proper trios, this interesting poem that Ezra creates. We have uh, Surayah, Azayah, and Yerim Yerah. Now these names stand in the text declaring, Yahweh has prevailed, for Yahweh has come to our aid, and so Yahweh shall be exalted. Yeah. Do you see how they kind of go together, these three things? He has prevailed because he's come to our aid, and so now he will be exalted. I mean, what a start to the list of names. Uh, what a start that we would just kind of skip over, uh, thinking that we're going to get to a good bit. This is the good bit, because this tells you the story of who God is. As the people stand there in their rebuilt city, their relationship with God restored, these people of understanding can say, here we are. Despite everything God has prevailed. Despite the fact that we should have been scattered, never to return, even though the forces arrayed against us were overwhelming, and even though we should have been crushed and left in the dust without any hope, despite this and more, God has prevailed. God came to our aid. When no one else could have rescued us, when no one else could have restored us, when no one else could have brought us simply back to the land to be those unique people of God, he did it. And so now, Yahweh will be exalted. So it's a wonderful story of the people of God being woven in a few names. Of course, it continues in verse 3. We've got Pashkur, which means uh, freedom. Uh, Amayah, uh, Yahweh has declared it. And Malkiah, Yahweh is king. And these are collated uh, together. They are a particular combination. Uh, freedom is the cry of these men who were slaves because they have returned, because they have been set free. And they weren't set free because a Persian despot declared it so. They were set free because God decided it was the time for them to be free. They were free because the true king said that they were going to be free. And when he says it, who can stand against him? Verse 4 <clears throat> combines the name Chatush. Uh, so therefore, we are now assembled. Uh, Shabanyar, we are now growing. And Maluk, uh, and we will be reigning. Following the declaration of freedom in the previous verse, the people are now assembled uh, and they are assembling before God. And so now they are growing in his presence. They are reigning on behalf of the king. Uh, as his representatives, they have a status beyond anything that the world could offer. I mean, these are people in a tiny country, at the, the back end of a mighty empire. They are, in the eyes of the world, nothing. But they reign as royalty 
on behalf of God. As the sons and daughters of God, they have a status far beyond anything the world could offer. Uh, verse 5 goes on to describe the people as harim, uh, dedicated to God, as uh, Meamoth, uh, raised up, and Obadiah, servants of Yahweh. Now, at this point, the people uh, find themselves rededicated to God. They have been raised up once again to be the servants of Yahweh. Despite having rebelled so many times, they find themselves once again as his people, returned to the land, and more importantly, returned to him. Verse 6 declares Daniel, God is my judge. Ginnithon, he is my protector, uh, who has uh, Baruch, uh, who has uh, blessed us. I mean, this fragile remnant of people recognize that God is their judge. Not any man, not any opinion of man, not the Persians, not the surrounding nations. It is God who is the only one who is fit to judge. And for each and every one of us, it is a huge encouragement. It is a huge corrective in our minds to recognize that the person who judges us is God. And when we are afraid, when we might feel intimidated, as these people felt, we recognize, no, God is my judge. It is his opinion that matters the most. And it's that wonderful corrective. And they recognize that God is our judge. He is also, therefore, our protector. Because in that vulnerable place of saying, no, God is my judge. And having the wrath of those who have no thought of God in their head. It is also important to have the other half of that. But he is our protector. And he is the one who blesses us. We continue in verse 7, and that we have uh, Meshulam. So therefore we are safe, because we are the friends of God. See how that kind of follows on from the previous ones. We have Abiyah, God, who is our father, who issues out our security, Meomim, from his right hand. What a trio. I mean, to be described as friends of God. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I come from a, a, a culture, and maybe it's my own particular uh, idiosyncratic ways, but I sometimes find it quite difficult on a personal note, to describe God as my friend. Uh, he is, the Bible tells me that, but nonetheless, in my mind, I find this a difficult one. You know, uh, you know I, I can think of God as, as, as holy, I can think of him as, as the judge. They're easy in my mind. <laughs> he may be very well different. But God is my friend. There's sometimes there's a block within me when I hear that. But it's true. God as our friend. Again, of course, that was a description given to Abraham uh, with God. So again, you've got that link going back to their forefathers. God as friend. A friend of the Almighty. Friend of the creator of heaven and earth. And to be a friend of God, particularly in the Old Testament sense, was a very special relationship indeed. What really strikes me, though, is that you get to choose your friends. <laughs> Um, you know, family you're, you're stuck with, uh, but your friends you choose, you invest in them, you want to be with them. I find that so striking when I think of God and I think of me. I know who I am, and I, I'm beginning to get a grasp of the shadow of who he is, and yet he would 
have that relationship with me. He would choose to have that relationship with me. I think it's an incredible description. But added to that, we have something which is possibly even more incredible. God as our Father. Um, (laughs) um, I mean, to, to be a father, there are many facets to being a father. Obviously, we're supposed to imagine the very best father and then beyond. But there there are so many facets to being a father that Ezra specifies in what particular category, in what particular way he's meaning. And he talks about the father with the mighty right arm. Uh, again, a fairly uh, common way of describing God, uh, the protector, uh, God, the one who would come to our aid, the, the mighty right arm. Uh, now, I could not uh, believe, uh, before I'd become a father, I couldn't believe how ferociously I would love my children or how vehemently I would want to protect them. I could not imagine it beforehand. I couldn't imagine being willing to put myself in a place of harm for these tiny beings. It kind of came as quite a surprise to me uh, when it happened. And yet, despite the sheer vehemence I would want to protect my children, I cannot imagine what it is to be the God, the Father, with the mighty right arm. The vehemence that he has for his children. I, I, uh, I remember once uh, I came to a realization that uh, when it came to protecting my children, that I would be willing to take the life of somebody else. Now, that's not really my nature. Um, I'm not really that kind of person. But it really shocked me when I realized that I would be prepared, and I'm not saying it would be right, but to protect my child by taking the life of another person. It kind of came to a head uh, when I was on the bus once. I was on the bus at this tiny wee bundle. My firstborn was, was on my chest, you know, sort of a bag thing. And this man uh, on the bus, he, he seemed uh, not uh, too well, and he kind of lurched towards us. Now, it wasn't his fault. A, a, a bus is not a, it's not a stable environment. And uh, immediately I kind of reflectively thought of different ways I would do harm to this man as I pulled back. New thoughts to my head. I'd never been there before. And I realized with a real shock to myself that I'd be willing to kill a man to save my child. Now, there's a point to me saying this. You'd be glad to hear. God loves you so much, he'd be willing to kill a man. And he did. God loves you so much that he came as a man in order to die for us. We try and understand the vehemence of love of the father with the right arm who would be wanting us in there, protected. That vehemence of willing to take his life on a cross for us. That's what it means to have this vehemence of the father with the mighty right hand. And because of that, we have verse 8, when it says, Mazayah, we are therefore strengthened and rescued by Yahweh. Who Bilgahi, he ended my grief because we were Shemayah, we were heard by Yahweh. It's quite an incredible uh, declaration at the end of that first list. Uh, we have this description of the saving nature of God, a God who hears the cries of his people and saves them, who ends their grief and brings them to that square as a people remade. And so these names, they tell us 
who they are, why they're there, why they're able to make this sign of commitment to God because of who he is. It is a story of the things that he has done for them to bring them to that place and give them the chance to say, Amen. And it's not because of what they have done. At no point uh, does the list allow them that space. They don't stand there with an inflated view of themselves. Instead, all that they are, all that they take hold of as the people of God is the result of the God who loved them and who heard them and rescued them. Now, you'll notice there's quite a lot more names. Uh, I don't know if it's the sense of relief or disappointment. That that's where I'm ending, as it were, uh, articulating what's going on in those names. But each of them testified to the power of God. Every single man who wrote his name is a testimony. Each of those lives is a testimony. But the meaning of it testifies to who God is. It's a revelation of the God of gods. And so they were not swayed by the people around them. They were defined by what God said and who he said they were. And so they commit to this serious covenant, the serious oath to guard the commandments of Yahweh. That's what we have in verse 29. They say that we will guard the commandments of Yahweh, his judgments and his customs. And they're going to do it in the face of all opposition. And the details that follow that, I'll just kind of explain what that means. It starts off with the central concern of the people that there is only one God, and so the dangers of idolatry through intermarriage come first. Uh, They recognize that if they are not dedicated to God, if they don't rely on him, then they will cease to exist. The very identity will be gone if they dilute the message of God. They then dedicate themselves to the Sabbath and the sabbatical year, which is next on the list. And that's really important. Uh, The Sabbath, of course, uh, is a day off. Uh, The physical mental requirements for humanity required in the past and so to today. But it's what the Sabbath was all about that makes the whole thing join together, uh, which helps us understand what they were really saying. Uh, the Sabbath, uh, at the very beginning, points back to creation. God, of course, creates the six days, and then on the seventh day, he has the, the, the day of rest. And it's not because God was tired. It's not because God uh, you know, couldn't go any further and needed some time off. It's because God was finished. There was nothing else to do. It was complete. Well, as the Hebrew says, it was uh, just so. Uh, it was uh, uh, complete, squared, uh, uh, very good. There was nothing else to be done. And the Sabbath day exists because of the completed work of God. Uh, Equally for us, uh, there is another point when God says it is finished. He does it on the cross. When he says it is finished. He doesn't say it's almost finished or, you know, I've done 99%, but if you work really hard, you might be able to make it complete. Not so. It is finished. And the Sabbath day, as it always had been in the Old Testament, and as we see from Christ on the cross, the Sabbath day is the recognition that he has already done it all. It is in the completed work of God that we rest. That's its purpose. And so the people recognize we're going to have the Sabbath day to remind us Although we're going to be busy, although we're going to be trying and doing different things, although there are certain requirements as the people of God to do certain things as they lay out, we are the people of God because of what he's already done. We are the people who are able to commit to him because of what he's already done. We can be in the square or we can be here in Hebron Church because of what he has already done. 
And as we look forward, it is only because of what he has already done. And so we commit our future to the one who has done everything, to the one who can do more than we can imagine. We commit it to him. Not in a sense of strength, but in an awareness of our own weaknesses, our own failings, chapter 8 and chapter 9. But as we look forward, we do so with him. And so the text continues in verse 32, noting the things that they should be doing. But as a people, they commit to God once again. They are held by that common redemptive story. They stand as a people miraculously rescued by God. A people who have a past who is dealt with. And a future in the hands of the God who can do more than they can imagine. And that's no different when it comes to us. Nehemiah 10 is a high point, the pinnacle of the book, the story of this rescued people. And over the three chapters that we've done so far, we have seen the people rescued. And through exposure to the Word of God, they changed the Bible, uh, the Torah that they were reading, revealed God, told them who they were, and they respond. They commit to standing together. They affirm their dedication to God together and say, Amen. And so, too, when we read a text like that, yes, we are challenged. As we emerge from a year of lockdown, we come, but we come with a sense of hope of what God will do with us as we commit our future to him. And so we are called upon to make that same great amen, that same great amen, recognize what God has done and recognizing who he is and what he could do with us in the future. And so we make that great amen. We, we don't make an amen to you know, Hebron Church. We don't make the amen to, to me. That would be patently ridiculous. We say the amen to him. A dedication to God, the service of God. And just like those names that were written on the roll of honor, we say, right, my name goes there. I will stand above the parapet. I'll dedicate myself to God. I'll take my place and take the hand of God as he leads us forward into the future of his making. That's the message of Nehemiah 10. That's the message for us this morning. As we look to a God who can do more than we can imagine. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you firstly that you are indeed capable of far more than we could possibly imagine, that you are indeed the creator of heaven and earth, the one who has been faithful, the one who rescued us, who was able to bring us to this place. And at a time as we read of great dedication, of great hope looking to the future, we pray that this would indeed be the same for us, as we look around and think to dedicate ourselves to you, to the betterment of the people around us, to the people who are not even in this place. And so, Lord, we just simply pray that you'd overcome our shortcomings, that you'd overcome our weaknesses as we step forward into a future with you. God, bless us in this place as we seek to serve you and give you the glory. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.